The biggest rugby tournament of the year is coming to a Green King pub near you. Watch all the unmissable action live as Europe's top six battle it out for glory in the Six Nations tournament. In and out, in and out, for the line! Leave your rivalries at the door and get the team together to watch the Six Nations. Feel the excitement and the buzz of coming together to enjoy matchday food and drink at your nearest Green King sports pub. Scores in the corner! The Six Nations and Green King. 18 plus, drinkaware.co.uk. Hi, it's Alfie here, the presenter of The Ruck. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to tell you about Funding Circle. And to do that, British and Irish Lions, Saracens and England hooker Jamie George is alongside me. How are you, Jamie? All good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to have you with us uh, for The Ruck. Now, Funding Circle backs small and medium UK businesses with simple, competitive business finance. And Jamie is a Funding Circle ambassador because, Jamie, not only are you day-to-day a professional athlete, but you're also a business owner as well. Yeah, yeah. I uh, set up a business with a good school friend of mine about six years ago called Carter and George. Um, we're a physio business that effectively tries to deliver the same level of elite care that I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. So the link between physiotherapy and strength and conditioning and rehabilitation, etc. I've been looking for a physio. so I know a good place. I'll get your card after. Funding Circle has supported over 90,000 British businesses with £12 billion in finance since 2010. So, Jamie, simply, how have Funding Circle helped you? Well, obviously, they've got an amazing um, financial product. So um, our most recent venture is, is trying to grow the business as quickly as we can. We've got five clinics now and we're looking to push on. And obviously, we wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of a funding circle and um, the financial support that they were able to give us. So if you're looking to overcome challenges or push your business forward, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. Hello, this is The Ruck, the rugby podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. A huge, massive congratulations to Exeter Chiefs, who, a decade on from winning the championship, are now champions of Europe. It was a truly epic Heineken Champions Cup final. 14-man Chiefs hanging on to deny a determined Racing comeback. And on Saturday, they get the chance to complete the double, assuming COVID doesn't do the job for them as Wasps wait to hear if they'll get the all-clear to play in the Gallagher Premiership final. I'm Lawrence Delalio, and joining me today are Ruck regulars Stephen Jones and Alex Lowe, and we're joined by Alan Dimmock from Rugby World magazine. Good morning, gentlemen. It Hello. was a quite astonishing game at Ashton Gate, probably the best European final we've had for many a year. Exeter seems to be in complete control, I guess, only to allow tries from Zebo and Camille Schatt to, to make the scoreline sort of 28-27, and it gave us the, uh, the most dramatic finish at the end. Stephen, I'm going to start with you. I mean, you've seen probably every European final there's ever been. One of the classics, Lawrence, you're right, I have seen every European final, but they only go back to 95. It's not as if it's 1871 or anything. I'm not that old. But it was in terms of the twists and turns, the uncertainties, the, the fact that you were aware that both teams were not actually playing the way they'd set out to play. The occasion and the, and the strength of the opposition had, had changed their own, their own game plan. But we didn't know till, what, three seconds before the end who was going to win. 
and it was just absolutely majestic. And we, we've got to say this every week. It was desperate there were no crowd there, but it was a magnificent occasion and a magnificent match and two great sides. Yeah, and I think if we, I mean, I 100% echo that. If we if we look back at the game itself, you know, the both sides of the ball, I mean, eight tries scored in all in a, in a European Cup final, but also the quality and commitment defensively from both sides, not just in that final also, but in, but in the final the night before as well. I mean, just from an attack and a defence, it just seemed to be, to be all in. Alex, what, what was your take on it? I mean, they're, they're, obviously Exeter had to win it twice, which is, in itself is phenomenal. They seem to be coasting, particularly just before half-time with the Harry Williams try, slightly assisted by, one, some French tactics in the first half, and, and two, by some of the most bizarre substitutions I've seen in the history of the game. Um, <laughs> you know, Camille Chat, your best um, ball carry forward, take him on on 50 minutes. I mean, he's hardly emptied the tank on 50 minutes, has he, really? LaRue, your best, um, your, your, your most brutal forward, who's causing all sorts of problems in the line-out to Exeter. Let's take him off too. And then um, we've got our, our best back, who's on fire, Simon Zebo. He's on a hat-trick. I'll tell you what, let's wallop him off as well. I mean, I've never seen three more, more absurd substitutions in the history of the game. Um, and uh, I do feel that that's slightly handed the initiative back to uh, to the Exeter Chiefs. You've summed it up there, Lawrence. It was, it was a kind of a wild, chaotic game that was compelling the whole way through, largely, as Jonesy said, because you knew that Exeter weren't playing with the control that they usually play with. I think in their own 22 and in the, and in the Racing 22, they were, they were the Exeter that we, that we know, but they lacked that control sort of in the... In, in large sort of central part of the of the field, you had that you had and, and the narrative, the narrative just swung all over the place. I thought, like as you say, the first twenty minutes, Exeter storm ahead, but are massively helped by Teddy Irabaran just completely losing his head at scrum half, wild kicks, crazy passes, high tackles, playing straight into Exeter's hands, giving them penalties and field position, and they were fourteen nil up. And then Finn Russell began to to find the range of his passes. His attacking kicking game is so good. And and the, the momentum kind of got wrestled back, and then, as you say, Exeter could never quite shake off Racing. Racing are, are there on their coattails, um, and then make a series of bizarre replacements, taking off their most influential players. And Exeter, as we saw with Bristol on on Friday night, ultimately, because and there's a comparison there because Bristol also couldn't play the way that they normally play. They were forced to to find a different way to win a final using all the same sort of qualities that they have about them, but they weren't able to, to unleash the attacking game that, that we know uh, throughout that final against uh, against Toulon. They had a six-minute defensive stand on Friday night, which was critical to them winning that game. And then, and then Exeter did the same on, on Saturday. And it was it was a remarkable game for, for all those reasons. So many narratives, so many subplots. Even the you know, Joe Simmons' man in the match the most accurate kicker in, in the Champions Cup. And in a game like that with eight tries, which is the record for a Champions Cup final, and yet it didn't feel like it was this open, you know, certainly from X's perspective, open attacking game. They scored three from, from close range and, and an interception, eight tries, but Joe Simmons didn't miss a kick again. And ultimately that's, you know, that's what makes a difference. Alan, there's some, some magical players across both sides in the Cup final. I mean, there's no doubt about that. 
Finn Russell being one of them. And I, I, without putting you on the spot, I do want to discuss him because I thought at one point during the, the performance, you know, Racing, if you look at them, they're a team full of magicians, but they're also a team full of lunatics as well. And, and sometimes the magician and the lunatic is the same person. The risk v reward. I, I love Finn Russell. I love everything about him, the way he plays, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And when he, when he threw, you know, his range of passing is phenomenal. And, and that pass he threw against England to start the comeback in the Calcutta Cup um, was a pass that very few fly halves would have even dared to attempt. But is it just a question of, of when he gets it right, it gets it spectacularly right. And when he gets it wrong, he gets it horribly wrong. Yeah, there's a sense with uh, Finn Russell that he swings from the divine to the comedy, doesn't he? And uh, I suppose the issue, anyone that has to coach Finn Russell has to contest with the question, do you want to stifle this man's personality in any way? Because you're right, when he gets it right, it's sublime. And, you know, if we look at this Champions Cup campaign as a whole and the start that that they've made in Europe and everything, he he has this incredible connection with Virami Vakatawa and with Simon Zebo in particular. Now, if you ask those two gentlemen if you want to stifle Finn Russell, they'd say never in a million years. However, in this game, we have seen the, the incredible range, the, the beautiful and the horrendous from Finn Russell. I mean, in, as Alex mentioned that Teddy Iriburin uh, was having nightmares in the first 10 minutes, it can't have been helped when we see Finn Russell take his eye off the ball for a brief moment and guddle it in his own uh, in-goal area, and it looked like Johnny Hill potentially could have scored from the drop ball there. Wasn't that a bad pass from Iribrand? It's a terrible pass, but... But, it, but Alan, it's also a pass that should never have been made, because when you look at that pitch, and they, they knew exactly where they were playing, you look at the size of the in-goal area, and you say, right, anything anything up halfway up towards the 22, nine takes all the responsibility and kicks the ball. Simple as that. You know, there's no... It's not going back to 10, because there's going to be so much heat on him. Absolutely. But that heat never left... Finn Russell for the duration of this game so there were moments where as we said fantastic connection with Simon Zebo. he throws a cutout pass for Simon Zebo's first try and it was weighted perfectly but then in the second half he tries something similar and that's where the intercept comes from because he'd already decided in his head what he was going to do when they broke on the counter sometimes he's, he, that was one of those occasions where actually being a bit more conservative possibly could have helped him. There were other moments where he tried a crossfield kick at one point and it didn't quite lead to the play that he wanted. So he tried the exact same thing the next phase and overcooked it and kicked it straight into touch. Those are the moments where he seemed off the boil. Those are the moments where you can look at him and go, right, is this guy too much of a risk? But then he does what he does, where he has all these attacking weapons around him and he just has the ball on a string in his hands and he can give it to Simon Zebo going through a hole. He can give it to Virami Vakatawa. He can find Juan Imhoff, Imhoff, who had an incredible game for most of that final. You have to take the rough of the smooth. Do you want to stifle the kind of catcher he is? Now, you look at the other side, and you look at Simmons, who put in a fantastically controlled performance. You look at him. I mean, uh, Russ Petty, uh, who looks at rugby stats, found an, an incredible one at the week uh, uh, on Sunday where... He, Joe Simmons is one of only three men to ever be the captain and man of the match in a Champions Cup final. Pat Lamb and Brad Barrett are the other two. That's pretty illustrious company he's got. And for such a young player to have that level of control, what a future he has. And it feels like while so much attention will be on Finn Russell, are we detracting from Joe Simmons in the performance that he put in there? Well, certainly, Alan. I don't, I don't want to blame Finn Russell for um, Russell's defeat. But I do feel that uh, having lost the initiative with that Harry Williams try just before half-time, which I do believe was absolutely crucial to the outcome of the game. They then got themselves 
back in the game with a, with a brilliant five minutes just the other side of half-time Racing and then having drawn themselves within what two or three points that's the time for the next 10 minutes just to control the game a little bit and uh, I do feel that the Racing coaching staff when they take one look at the, um, at the at the decisions that they made I think they have to accept a lot of responsibility for what happened out there because as much as you can pass the responsibility on to your team you can actually have a have a big impact in terms of the, de- the decisions you make as a, as a coaching team at the times that you make them. I don't, don't buy any of this. I do not buy it. This is the European Cup final. We can't have anyone out there who's a great old ragamuffin of a bloke and a real great uh, player and he throws the odd pass, but the rest of the time he's hopeless. If the fly halves had been swapped, Rassig would have won that game by a street. And I do not buy the Finn Russell stuff. He... He had a poor game, a very poor game. I blame him for the drop goal. The, 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 the try that he gave to um, Simon Zebo was, again, a no-look, hurried pass, which could easily have been picked off by Hope Flaherty. Mm. Russell's not there to entertain or to be a real ragger of a bloke. He is there to get Racing 92 home for their first ever win. And he categorically did not do it. We saw it in the Bellislow Cup. We've talked about it before. You know, why Why would you not just set up for it? Why would you not even shape to go for a drop goal, which at least distracts the defenders? But, I mean, they obviously don't, and it doesn't come into their mind. When you're a forward in that position, do you just get so like zoned in on, we're going to batter them, going to get over the line, and your scrum half, particularly you know, Machineau and the way they play in France, he's organising that, that he just, it's like white line fever, they just forget everything around them? What, what, what's oh, it like think, in that I think position? The, I think the way that the game has gone, particularly in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, the odds of, of a team scoring when they're five metres from the line is, is, is gone up dramatically, even versus the odds of actually successfully kicking a drop goal. And I think, uh, um, you know, we saw Exeter in, uh, in the first half get their rewards from, from pick and go. And they were patient and they got there. Racing were on 18 phases. 18 phases and, um, you know, obviously they, they, they didn't get over the line. But listen, I, I do agree with you. I think um, if you'd have dropped back in the pocket, what it does is it, 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 makes, the, uh, it makes the forwards panic um, that are defending. And at, at best or at worst, they would have given a penalty away for offside. And, I, and so therefore, I, I do think to a certain extent, he, I wouldn't say bottled it, he just didn't even think about it. And that's, again, more of a coaching issue as well as a playing issue, because you've got to, in the big games, have the opportunity to, to, to have that up your sleeve. So, you know, again, I, I would argue that. But listen, I, I don't want to spend all the, all the pod talking about Racing. I think we do have to pay tribute to the Chiefs and how wonderful they were, the journey that they've been on. What is it, 10 years ago, they, they weren't even in the, in the Premiership. And now they've got the opportunity to, uh, you know, to complete a Premiership double. Jonesy, who were the real standouts for you? I mean, they're uh, across the team. I think, uh, look, we're sitting in a, in a country now that didn't win the World Cup because their tight end prop fell down on the big day. Harry Williams, I think, has come through powerfully, Lawrence, in recent months. And I thought he was tremendous on Saturday. I thought he was the player everyone thought he might be. Um, I thought Luke Cowan-Dickey's throwing in line that wasn't very good, but what a player he is. He's not a massive guy. What a player he is at, at, at close quarters. And I, again, you know, you, you you cannot get past Rob Baxter, this quiet, quiet bloke. You know, he, he would pass for a farmer, which, he, which of course he would pass for a farmer. He'd pass for a deck chair attendant. 
but he is one of the greatest coaches that, that the game has seen. And he's done it not by being flashy, not by being voluble, not by taking the piss out of the opposition like other people done, uh, do. He's taken it um, season by season, month by month, improvement by improvement. And I, I, you know, my heart went out to the bloke on, on Saturday. I thought, what a great guy, what a great triumph. And it's got to be a Hollywood movie, Lawrence. They've got to make a movie out of this. All these Cornish fishermen and all that. Make a movie of it. It'll be much bigger than that Clint Eastwood thing on the '95 <laughs> World Cup. My job on Saturday, Lawrence, on. Um, was was player ratings, which is a yeah, well thank, done, Arthur. A Excellent. Thankless, it's a job thankless. that no one wanted. Well done, myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got that hospital pass uh, from Stephen Jones, so thanks, mate. Uh, it's a thankless task. No one wants to do it. Thirty words per player on the final whistle. So you're making you're making snap judgments. Excuse but I me. I didn't give a man the match. I didn't pick out one player because it felt like it was. It was like the ultimate team performance from Exeter. And there were outstanding and influential performances all across the field. For, you know, I mean, Johnny Hill's a player who we haven't mentioned yet, who yeah. just seems to be everywhere. He's involved in everything. He's, you know, he's winning lineouts, he's making critical tackles, he's putting pressure on. He's just one of those locks who just gets himself involved in everything. But you could say the same about Dave Ewers was was massive. I thought Harry Williams was was huge. Uh, Alec Hepburn winning scrum penalties against massive props. Like I, I didn't give a, a single man in the match. I gave a mm. lot of the same scores just because it felt to me like it was sort of the ultimate team performance and that heart and everything they put into it just epitomised them as a club. Well, listen, uh, I want to uh, I want to leave Exeter Chiefs there for now. We just all congratulate them wholeheartedly and. As you say, Jonesy, we, we've, we've had the Chasing the Sun documentary following the South African World Cup success. I'm not sure what you'd call the Chiefs documentary, but, it, but I, I'd certainly pay good money to watch it, that's for sure. sure. Right, we're going to move on to the other European final, which often gets kind of, um, you know, given the, um, the, the, the tag, the Europa Cup final. Um, the one that happened the night before in Axon, Provence. Bristol Bears set up. Uh, an English double in this year's European competitions with their first win in their first ever final, beating Toulon in the Challenge Cup. An extraordinary match again, given the fact that uh, they scored after only a few seconds. They were without Charles Piatau and Nathan Hughes, and they were also without their um, inspirational skipper, Stephen Luatour, who stayed at home, as we know, for the for the birth of his baby daughter. I'm assuming you all watched that game as well. Jonesy, extraordinary achievement in, in, in a different way to Exeter, but they're, they're building something, Bristol, aren't they? Yes, they are. Uh, it, it was an extraordinary achievement. It was um, Pat Lamb targeted that this, this trophy from way back, Lawrence. And, you know, let's be fair, however you look at the competition, and I think it's improved, it, it is a trophy. It, it's not like a third, a third or fourth place in the league. It, it is a trophy. And they've got one and they can parade it round whenever... COVID uh, 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 disappears. So it was a great performance considering the players they were missing. We have to say that the Toulon team is a bit of a shadow of their great years. You have to say that. But with those players out and the passion, I just think fantastic. Good for them. But I I just think there is a difference between them and Exeter at the moment. And that is, as was proved when they played Bristol, this Bristol side has done wonders to get them where they are. They've established themselves near the top. They've got a trophy. But I think now that Pat Lamb would look to kick on because at the very, very top end of it, I don't think they're quite good enough. So a great trophy, but I think that is the end of stage one for them. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the, uh, the the fact that they had two guilt-edged try-scoring opportunities in the first half and they didn't take them 
against a better side, they probably would not have been going home with the trophy. No, no doubt about that. Because, uh, you know, but in saying that, I think, the, I mean, they were absolutely pummeled at, up at the Rico by Wasps, beaten in every single department of the game, quite comfortably, actually. The, yeah. score, the scoreline flattered them by the end. But I think the way that they were able to put that behind them and sort of regather themselves without two of their best players and then travel over to France, which, let's be honest, whoever you were playing is always a tough game. You'd have probably, you'd have probably backed Racing to a beat next to it had that game taken place in Marseille, just in terms of their, their own mindset. So I, I just think anyone who wins a trophy and wins it abroad down in, in France you know, deserves enormous credit. The other bizarre thing about French rugby is, is how their TV producers were constantly panning to uh, Junior Paramore as the uh, as the uh, as the DOR for Bristol Bears, and then they decided to pick Ben Earl as their man of the match. Who I have to say had a, had another monumentally big game. But if you're Callum Sheedy and you kick 22 points um, and bring them, you know, drag them back into the game several times, you're thinking, what have I done wrong? I, I agree. In that goal line stand, I was I was talking about earlier. Ben Earl was just everywhere in that. He's been so important to them. Um, but you know, Callum Sheedy, uh, who I think five years ago was was kicking goals in against Doncaster, and if, the, the parallel actually, Josie's point on the Bristol are, are not quite where Exeter are. If you think back, so ten years ago, Exeter beat Bristol in the playoff final to win promotion. This weekend, they both won a European title. But in the, in the intervening decade, Exeter have just built and built and built and built, and Bristol. Have, trod water for so long in the championship and they're now only two years into this into this premiership project on, under Pat Lamb and they have a trophy to, to show for it and, and even even Pat as much as he was celebrating the the victory you know straight after the game he talked of this is our this is a good stepping stone for us you know we don't want to be back in this competition again mm. they're not where Exeter are because they've started their their ascent you know only the last couple of years Extra have been building since since they were promoted. They started brilliantly. I mean, if you're going to kick off to anyone on the field, don't kick off to Semi Rendrandro. 15 seconds later, Harry Randall's yeah. away. I barely had time to even take a sip of tea, let alone spit it out when that try came. <laughs> yeah, but Alan, I mean, again, it, it, it's sort of, you know, you just wonder the French coaching tactics sometimes are just... Here's a player who was probably, when he left us in Toulon, was the best player in the world. Um, he's not been doing too badly at Bristol either, by the way. Uh, let's let, let's put the let's put the ball up on him on the first kickoff, and if you do, surely you, you've you've got some sort of exocet nuclear ready to to absolutely smash him to pieces. But I just throw my hands up in the air sometimes at, the, at some of the tactics employed by uh, by some of the by some of these teams. To pick him out, you're right, is is pretty dumb. But and and at that pressure of of a match for that a moment a game of that magnitude for Bristol for their best mm. their most exciting player to have what I'd describe as hummingbird hands. They were just mm. so quick to give the pass, to set them away. Those are the moments that make final special and those are the moments that are the difference. And it's, it's just great when you see a player of that calibre stand up right from the first kickoff. And he did that through the game. His influence on that game was less about the, the breaks that we, we know of and more about the, just the speed of thought and the speed of hand and the, and the body angles. They played Bryce Heem brilliantly for 20 minutes. They attacked down his wing and Rendranja was pulling him all over the place with his eyes, with his body angles. So you know, he was he was offering more than just the the obvious that, that, that we're so used to. And and I think that was, apart from the, the flashes of brilliance, so that, that try, Max Malin scores from 45 metres, again, because there was a half half a gap opened because Toulon had an eye on, on semi and he hitch kicks and goes through. 
but actually the meat of their performance was players like Dave Atwood mm. and Ben Earl, who just didn't stop all game. And it was not, as we said at the start, it was not a typical Bristol performance in that we all expect them to come and, and, and attack all game and go for it. That wasn't, they weren't able to impose that on, onto the match. And so they kind of, second half particularly, Sheedy was, was playing a territorial game a bit and they put the squeeze on. And when you do that, it's players like Dave Atwood, who I, I spoke to in the week before the game and, he, you know, he's from Bristol. He, they've never won a major trophy in his lifetime. And he was pumped for that game. And I thought you could tell. And it's one of those performances that it's just, it's not flashy, but it's so influential in in that in like the thick of the battle. There's a theme developing here. If we look at the, the top performers, certainly in England, and I'm sure it's probably the same in a lot of other countries, but you've got the likes of Exeter Chiefs, Bristol Bears, Wasps. The, the, the basis, the foundations of their success are built on, on homegrown kind of academy players in, in, the, uh, in the setup. You know, it's very much the blueprint at Exeter, probably more so than any other club. Bristol, we talk about the, the number of homegrown players in their team. Wasps lost it for a little while with the move to Coventry understandably, but seem to have found it again with the, you know, Jacob Umanga, the, the, the Willis brothers, you know, Alfie Barbary, there's a whole group coming through now. And I think then you start adding the, the Stardust, the, uh, the, the Stuart Hogs, the, the Johnny Grays, the Semi Renjandras, the, you know, Charles Piertows onto that sort of formula. And, and you've kind of got the, the recipe for, for, for that kind of success and for that sort of sustained success, because that's the kind of thing we're looking at. And I guess the, the directors of rugby um, in each instance, uh, and I know all of you at various times in, your, in the last few weeks or months have, have spoken to all of these three. They, they deserve enormous credit for, for what they've achieved this season. Massively, Lawrence. If Eddie Jones ever says again, if he's ever sniffy about the premiership, you know, he, he, he should really reconsider before he opens his trap because they are bringing through players at a rate of knots now. No, no question about that. If you want to play Wasps, you better get in early because in a couple of years, you won't, you won't want to play them. And, and, and also the directors of rugby, as you say, I mean, th- th- we know it's been a savage season. We know there's been so many games. But to bring your two teams, Pat Lamb's team and, and, and Rob Bax's team, to finals looking like they, they were fresh, they, they played well, they won both. It is a real um, recommendation for them and indeed for the Premiership. I, I just think that, you know, the, the English Premiership is, is so hard. You're not allowed to take a backward step or indeed to rest. But the, uh, the way that the English teams have, have, have persevered over, over the teams from the Pro 14 is very marked. And I think you're dead right. I think the clubs should take a big pat on the back for the way they've done it and the way they've marshaled their resources. You are listening to The Ruck. Enjoy more rugby insight and analysis throughout the season with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash The Ruck to find out more. Six nations and six amazing chances to win an unforgettable adventure for you and five mates in a Six Nations European host city of your choice. To take part, enter online now at greenking.co.uk slash rugby. Six nations, six mates and six international rugby getaways worth £3,000. Scrum down and sign up to win at greenking.co.uk slash rugby and watch all the Six Nations action live at your local Green King pub. Terms and conditions apply 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Rock Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Funding Circle. Funding Circle has been supporting small businesses since 2010, so they know that like rugby, running a business takes hard work, drive and a good team supporting you. They've helped Saracens and England hooker Jamie George grow his business. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how. If you're looking to improve different parts of your business or hire talent with extra know-how, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Funding Circle business finance that backs you. Gentlemen, we're not quite done yet. There's a couple more things we need to discuss, namely the um, the finale to the uh, to the Premiership season, the Premiership final, of course, at Twickenham this Saturday, 6pm kickoff on BT Sport. Wasps will find out later, my old club, the results of the latest round of COVID tests held on Saturday to determine if they can play in Saturday's final against Exeter. Just to remind our listeners, four players and three members of staff tested positive last week. The regulations agreed at the beginning of Operation Restart stated that the next highest ranking team would replace any side that couldn't take part in the final. So Wasps played this absurd situation that would mean that Bristol would replace Wasps in that final, despite being thrashed 47-24 by Wasps in the semi-finals. Now, as someone who's got a reasonably uh, close uh, line to what's going on at the, at, the, at the Wasps, I mean, I guess one of the problems that all rugby clubs have got is that they've decided to part company with their media managers. So um, often, the uh, not all clubs, Exeter still have theirs and Bristol still have theirs, but... Um, often the communication can be somewhat distorted. Wasps um, caused all sorts of panic by, by uh, declaring that four players had tested positive. What they, had, what they didn't declare is that all four players lived in the same household and were academy players, and that actually um, they closed the training facility this week anyway and gave their team the week off. So uh, uh, the results will be coming back this morning. Uh, Alan, you, you sound like you've got an exclusive there and you, you've got to line into those test results. Well, no, I had absolutely nothing on the test results, but more I was speaking to the guy. It's funny you mentioned the uh, lines of communication. Uh, I was speaking to one of the people that you mentioned were quite good there. Uh, speaking to Bristol last night, just uh, just about where they are and where they're in, what headspace they're in in case they have to step in for Wasps. And, you know, they were fairly magnanimous. They said the, the regulations in the league are what they are. If we finish third, you know, we've got to be able to step in, but it's 100% Wasps' right to be there. And we don't deserve to be there. Wasps do. It didn't look from the social media celebrations that Bristol had after their, uh, after their win, which, you know, you, you, you can't take that away from them. But it, you'd like to feel that someone had a word with someone at Wasps and said, look, what, what's the percentage chance of this game going ahead? 
and they went probably about 95% certain that we'll be fielding a team because uh, I think Charlie Piatel was asleep the next morning with the trophy in his hands um, as they were boarding the plane. So uh, I, know, wouldn't, I wouldn't look too closely in anyone's eyes in that photograph. Good that. luck to them. And listen, one of, you know, listen, you know me as well as anyone. I'm old, old school. I think wins need to be savoured and remembered. And as someone who, who played against Toulouse in the European Cup and then played against Bath the following Saturday, I would be lying if I said we didn't have an absolute shedful after we beat Toulouse on the Saturday night. You know, you deal with the consequences of that on Sunday and then you prepare as professionally as possible from about Monday morning onwards. And that's the best way of winning, is all I can tell you. And Exeter and Bristol clearly feel the same way. I mean, I cannot believe, Lawrence, there's a tiny close season. I cannot believe that last week or before the Bristol players didn't book holidays this week. Cannot believe they'll all be here. I, I did not, if, I, if there was an announcement last August that this was going to happen, I missed it. I don't know about you, Alex, but it seems to have just come out at a rush. I think it's typical of the way Premiership rugby organise things. And I think if, if, the, if WAS can't make it, I think they should crown Exeter. I really cannot see the put the, 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 all right, for television reasons, great, but uh, it would just be such a disastrous end to the season. Let's, uh, let's, and uh, let's, let's hope and pray that Lawrence, yeah. your boys, are, uh, come through an effect. Well, let's crystal ball gaze a little bit, uh, Alex, with, with yourself. Um, assuming that WAS do make it through, and, and listen, I'm, I'm pretty certain that they will, and assume that they can pick a pretty much full-strength side. You know, clearly they are red-hot in terms of their form, but they are up against a, a team that are also red-hot and clearly showed us at the weekend that they don't always have to play the way that Exeter play to, to win games. Can you see any way of, of Wasps sort of finding a way of winning this game? Or, or do you think that everything has to go right for them? I mean, in terms of the penalty count, the breakdown, the scrums, the... You know, everything has to go right for them to stand a chance of, uh, of, of beating Exeter. I think Wasps need Malachi Fakitur to, to, to be fit. I don't know quite where he is after hobbling off in, in the semi-final. I think he and, and Jimmy Gopeth uh, and that back row will be massive. They have to get it right because I think Gopeth's experience is, is critical because what, what Exeter have is now would be five years' worth of experience in the Premiership final. Uh, as they showed on, on, on Saturday, they are... A streetwise team who are have learned from the big occasions. They they can now deliver on the biggest of occasions. Mm. And and what we just don't what's are on the rise. We just don't know yet. They're mm. a young team with young players in, in in some key positions. Jacob Umanga in particular, which is why I say Gopeth is it, it w- will be critical to them. But I think they can obviously test mm. Exeter. They have a they have players there to make life very very difficult. But they do need things to go go their way I, I think just because I feel extra mm. I use the word again I think I think they are streetwise and they understand mm. now and they've proven now how to deliver on the biggest of occasions and uh, with, with what yeah. we still don't know yet yeah listen I, I agree with that Alan um, when uh, when extra lost to Saracens in the final I think it was their first final they felt that getting to the final was an achievement in itself they weren't ready to win and they were just happy to be there Wasps obviously lost to Exeter in 2017 in the final and one or two players that existed in that Wasp team are now back, the, the, the Joe Launchbury's of this world. I mean, I, I can tell you from my own experience, part of winning a final is actually believing that you can win. And, uh, and it, it'd just be interesting to see if, if Wasps go into this final with that kind of determination and belief that they can actually beat the Exeter Chiefs rather than just going, do you know what? We've got to a final. If we lose, you know, we've, we've had a great season type thing. 
Well, that's an interesting point because a lot of that comes down to leadership. Uh, during lockdown, I had a, a chat with Lee Blackett for a piece I wrote called The Art of Losing, and it was about what you learn from hardship. So it's actually pretty fitting to be talking about what Wasps as a group can learn from failures because one of the things Blackett, who as a player was relegated a couple of times with Rotherham and with Leeds, and uh, what he learned from those hardships was the little things. So when he stepped up within Wasps to turn things around, big things that he explained that changed there was positivity around the group was a big thing. So if you talk about whether or not they want to win it, certainly that would be a core tenet of how the coaches at Wasps approach things. But the other thing is the little finer details because Blackett is a big believer in the fact that all players at this level have to be good at the uncoachables. That's diving on the ball when it's on the deck. That's chasing hard when there's a kick, working like hell when it's a breakdown. It's all now about whether they can learn from what they've done. Looking on the other side of things, Exeter will need to learn from what they did wrong on Saturday to let Rassen come in. So Alex said that it wasn't a typically extra uh, Chiefs performance. There was a lot more play in the middle of the park. Turnovers were what kept Rassen in that game. Now, if you look at Wasps players at the breakdown, you don't want Willis sniffing about in the middle of the park when there's a turnover on offer. You think if Chiefs learn those lessons and then change the way that they do slightly to be a little bit more pragmatic in the middle of the park, then obviously Chiefs are favourites with the bookies. And that makes sense. If that that happens, then the conversations that seem a little bit premature right now suddenly come into play where we're talking about Chiefs and the potential for a dynasty. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you've got the team that are vaunted for holding on to the ball for the longest amount of time uh, up against the team that probably take more possession off of anyone at the breakdown than any other side. So uh, we're really looking forward to that premiership final, as I said, this Saturday, BT Sports, 6pm kickoff. We will, of course, be talking about international squads when every player is available for selection. So uh, England, Scotland uh, and a number of other squads will be announced in, in due course. But obviously there is other players that will be joining them. So uh, tune in to, to next week's Ruck for all things international rugby. Before we close, there is some uh, any other business. Uh, Harlequin Saracens, Loughborough Lightning, of course, in the women's game, all made it two points uh, two bonus point wins out of two at the start of the uh, Alliance Premier 15 season. So uh, we'll keep a very close eye on that. And um, the Bledisloe Cup, gentlemen, uh, New Zealand, back to what we expect from them. Uh, they ran out fairly easy 27-7 winners against Australia in the second Bledisloe Cup. A lot of relief, I'm sure, for Ian Foster, um, who was coming under enormous criticism after only one draw we might add, question marks being asked in New Zealand whether they'd appointed the right coach. Even Graham Henry, who runs New Zealand Rugby, putting a little bit of pressure on Ian Foster. South Africa confirmed that they will not be competing in this year's Rugby Championship. Probably looking at the quality of the Bledisloe Cup, that seems like a pretty sensible decision from them. And uh, Alan, I know you've got uh, a couple of features coming up in, uh, in the next edition of Rugby World magazine that that you want to talk about. So tell us a little bit about those. Well, actually, there's a there's a project that we released a couple of weeks ago, um, which is returning to a theme for us, which is uh, one of the things we do with the magazine is it's we like to keep on top of the current characters, but there are also issues within the game that we like to, to talk about. And four years ago, we did a, a big piece in the magazine about pain and the experience of players using and in some cases abusing painkillers and the culture around that and why that was important. We wanted to revisit that after four years to say, not just let's, let's woe is me. Let's talk about all the sad stories, but actually say, right, here's what people are talking about for the potential for a different way to deal with this. If we assume that painkiller use and abuse is an issue, 
if we believe that chronic pain and long-term injuries are an issue which we've heard in recent weeks and months, uh, former players talking about the, the effect that the game has had on their bodies, let's try and be proactive and say, here's what the conversations are uh, going forward. Here's how people combat that. If we assume that all... Uh, all good medics within rugby have the best intentions and the players' welfare at heart and they want to do the right things. What common practice is today, how does that change in the coming years? So I spoke to people in the NFL and ice hockey about their, their approach to cannabis use. I spoke to the World Anti-Doping Agency about their approach, approach to cannabis use and CBD oil. Where the current studies are with that, uh, different approaches to that in the science, looking at the role of psychology, and whether we're not using that properly in the game, really just trying to be proactive and throw open. And some really interesting conversations have come that way. You know, I wouldn't say that we planted a flag in the ground to say, here's how we deal with pain now, but there are some interesting stories in there. And it's great to hear from the different perspectives from other players. So Davy Wilson, for example, who was a tight head with England for years, is only 35 years old. His body is wrecked. His back is in a hell of a way. You know, he walks his kids to school. He has to stop on the way home because he can. his legs have gone numb. He has to sit down. He, ref- he is training to be a physiotherapist as we speak, and he refuses to use any painkillers because he believes <clears> that it masks the problem. It's perspectives like that compared to the guys who we've spoken to who have issues with addiction for uh, painkillers like tramadol, exactly, is listening to these stories and saying, right, where do we go from there? And it's a conversation that I'm hoping that we'll be able to take out further and actually be positive about it rather than just going, this is a disgraceful thing. Yeah. What can we do about this? Well, listen, I think that'd be a fascinating read. And as someone, someone who uh, experienced a fair bit of pain, physical pain in, in my own career, I think the, certainly the lessons I would throw in there is that clubs and, and people within the game have got a huge responsibility to, when they terminate a player's contract, to make sure that that's not the end of the journey for them. There's, there's a whole education process that needs to take place. How do you prepare your body for, um, you know, for, for normal active duty, having... Uh, you know, had about 14 or 15 major operations in your life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, there's, lots of, uh, there's lots of questions that need answering. So, Jonesy, before we part company, anything you want to get off your chest? Last week, I was almost tempted to ring everybody I knew in Australia to say, calm down, you've won a draw, but it's almost like they the World Cup. And I think, blimey, you've got your comeuppance coming. And it happened, uh, they got above themselves and uh, got hammered. And for yeah, they, 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 forgot, they forgot about that bloke, Bowden Barrett, didn't they? Yes, they did. I think they forgot there was a second test match. Uh, as for sporting pain, there's a Spurs supporter. I know all about that. And there's no... Uh, 3-0 up against useless West Ham. There's no pain like it, I'm afraid. I tell you what, we, um, it, took, it took us a long time, actually nearly an hour of this podcast to even mention it. And uh, I know, I know. The Chelsea supporter who threw away a, a, a two-goal advantage ourselves. <laughs> Just, just finally, um, in terms of literary greatness, Alan Dimmock has come on and he's used the phrase hummingbird's hands. I mean, what a genius. Honestly, I'm going to use that as soon as I can in the paper. Hummingbird's yeah, hands. Can I add one, any other business from me? On this pod, we're preaching to the converted. Everyone who listens is going to be a rugby fan. Everyone who reads the rugby loves, loves the club game. You mentioned, Lawrence, about clubs relieving uh, media managers and the kind of the, the, the PR shambles that's happened in, in rugby in the last few months. The back pages of newspapers is where the sports editors put the stories that they feel are most appealing to the general sports audience. And it's notable today to me that the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, the Independent don't have any reference to Exeter being crowned European champions on their back page. And 
well, editorially, we would all agree that it deserves to be there. I think the sport, the club game in England and Europe needs to have their eyes open to that and realise that they are not doing enough mm. to sell this sport beyond the people who already love this sport. The final on Saturday was live on Channel 4 as well as on BT. I saw no promo for that, no advertising around that, and yet it was there for it was a, it was a gateway to the sport for an audience who don't already subscribe to watch rugby on BT. And while we can do more and it deserved a place on the back page of every paper and and if it wasn't there, then I would say that the sport isn't doing enough to convince the general sports fan about the the the, the enormity and the great about rugby about how great rugby is well listen I think we all agree with you Alex and uh, you know here here to that there's no doubt the game has not grown exponentially in the last 15 years and and Premier Rugby if you're listening uh, World Rugby if you're listening CBC if you're listening you know you need to do something about it it's not about attracting rugby fans they already watch the game it's about bringing new audiences in so we've now replace Jones Moans on the uh, <laughs> on the, the Ruck podcast with Alex's Lowe's. I like that. <laughs> My thanks, gentlemen. It's been a fascinating and, and a, a real high-quality podcast because of the content and, and what we've seen over the last weekend. And let's hope that we can bring the climax to the Gallagher Premiership season and every other season to an end next weekend. Looking forward to speaking to you all. My thanks to Stephen Jones, Alex Lowe and Al Dimmock by this time next week we will know who's been crowned champions of England. Let's hope it's settled how it should be on the pitch. If you've enjoyed The Ruck, please leave us a review. You can subscribe on Acast, iTunes, or your usual podcast provider. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash The Ruck. Thanks for listening to the Ruck podcast. We're delighted to be teaming up with Funding Circle and Funding Circle ambassador Jamie George is with me. All right, Jamie. Hello. Hello. How are you? All good. Good, good. So away from Saracens and England duty, you are a business owner and Funding Circle is a huge supporter of small and medium sized UK businesses. How have they helped you? Yeah, so uh, I've got a business with a friend of mine. It's a physiotherapy business, effectively delivering the same level of care I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. And we've been looking to expand and grow the business as quickly as we can. And with the financial products that Funding Circle have done, we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. So Funding Circle has been supporting small businesses with access to the finance they need to grow since 2010. And they know that like rugby, running a business takes hard work, drive and a good team supporting you. If you want to invest in your business and take your team to the next level, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. Jamie, can you do the honours? Funding Circle, business finance that backs you. The biggest rugby tournament of the year is coming to a Green King pub near you. Watch all the unmissable action live as Europe's top six battle it out for glory in the Six Nations tournament. In and out, in and out, for the line! Leave your rivalries at the door and get their team together to watch the Six Nations. Feel the excitement and the buzz of coming together to enjoy matchday food and drink at your nearest Green King sports pub. Scores in the corner! The Six Nations and Green King. 18 plus, drinkaware.co.uk. 